needs no introduction, but um, uh, we do thank you, Steve, for um, offering to uh, speak, and um, it's great to see you and Debbie again. Uh, we, we miss our fellowship with you, and uh, yeah, we, we just want to welcome you, and, and uh, yeah, we want you to come forward. Oh, no, don't stay there, Steve. I've uh, got Karen, Karen to come forward and do the reading. Today's reading is from Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Tax collectors and sinners were all crowding around to listen to Jesus. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses started grumbling. This man is friendly with sinners. He even eats with them. Then Jesus told them his story. If any of you has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will you do? Won't you leave the 99 in the field and go and look for the lost sheep until you find it? And when you find it, you will be so glad that you will put it on your shoulder and carry it home. Then you will call in your friends and neighbours and say, let's celebrate, I've found my lost sheep. Jesus said, in the same way, there is more happiness in heaven because of one sinner who turns to God than over 99 good people who don't need to. Jesus told the people another story. What will a woman do if she, was, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one of them? Won't she light a lamp, sweep the floor and look carefully until she finds it? Then she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Let's celebrate, I've found the coin I lost. Jesus said in the same way, God's angels are happy when every one person turns to him. Thanks, Karen. Okay, now would you come forward, Stephen? <laughs> I'll hand over both the uh, mic and the clicker. <laughs> oh, right, I, I don't, don't think we've got the... the All good? All good? Yep, that's good. Let's pray. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, um, have we got our first slide? Just click. Keep going. All right. So my apologies that um, I changed this reading, but I didn't change it. I just sort of didn't give Rose the correct numbers. <laughs> so we're still in the Gospel of Luke. We're just a little bit of a different place. So thanks, Karen, for coping with that. Um, so today's gospel reading comes from um, part of Jesus' teaching while in, he's on the, his way to his final destiny in Jerusalem. And this middle section of Luke's Gospel is actually called the travel narrative because it's the things Jesus did while he was traveling on his final journey from Capernaum through Judea and then on to Jerusalem where uh, for the Passover. So this is part of Luke's quite detailed um, exposition of the travel narrative and it takes nearly a third of Luke's gospel. So it's a single journey but, it's, but Luke treats this with a great deal of detail basically a sort of a blow-by-blow blow account of Jesus teaching to different groups as he travels along. So this part of Jesus' teaching consists of three parables, all with the same theme. So we've got the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then thirdly is the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to deal with the first two of those today. 
Now, in Jesus, um, in John's gospel particularly, Jesus is spoken of as, or well, speaks of himself as being the good shepherd, and that he knows his sheep by name, and that he knows that, that he's not the hired hand. The hired hand runs away when the wolf comes. The good shepherd stays and protects the sheep. And knowing all your sheep by name is a bit of a foreign concept in New Zealand and Australia because what we have here is flocks of thousands of sheep. There's no way you can even know their numbers, let alone know them by name. And it reminds me of a story about a lifestyle block owner in Australia who had six sheep that needed shearing. So he phoned a shearing contractor and uh, the contractor said, um, this is my best Australian accent, yeah, we're sharing 7,000 at Mungaraji next week, and then there's 3,000 at Wangaratta on Thursday and Friday. How many sheep have you got? And there was a pause. Um, six, said the lifestyler. Oh, 6,000. We'll need a week for that. Can't fit you in until October. No, no. Six. Oh, 600, that's good. We can do that in a day, probably the end of the month. No, 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 just six. And there's this long pause, and then the contractor says, could I have their names, please? <laughs> so our relationship with sheep is kind of, a different relationship from that lifestyle block owner. And when you're in Jesus' flock, it doesn't matter how big the flock is, he still knows you by name, obviously, but this was also true for shepherds in Israel. Their flocks tended to be small. They tended to know the sheep by name. They had names for their sheep. They had sort of characteristics. They knew their sheep. And so in this part of Luke's gospel, Jesus is speaking to the tax collectors and sinners. But as well as that, hanging around the fringes, they are hanging around the fringes, but as well as that, we've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So we've got these two very different audiences to Jesus' parables. It's this sharply divided audience. On the one hand the religious, respectable, devout Jews, and on the other hand, people who are on the margins and rejected by society. So the first parable is about the lost sheep. So I did a bit of research on the place of shepherds in Jewish society. They were usually looked down on by religious Jews because obviously by the nature of the job of being a shepherd, you can't take the Sabbath off. You can't sort of go say to the sheep, okay, guys, you're on your own for today because I'm not doing any work. So because they had to work on the Sabbath, the nature of their job dictated that, they were looked down on by the religious Jews. But however, there are many notable Old Testament characters who were shepherds. We know, of course, of David, who began his life as a shepherd. And Moses, at one point, was a shepherd. So, in some passages of the Old Testament scripture, 
God himself is likened to be a shepherd. The most common of which we know is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, says David. So I think that um, Jesus also hooks into this tradition when in John 10, 11, he calls himself the good shepherd. So although shepherds were looked down a little bit in society, I think there was also a sort of a parallel undercut running a theme running through Jewish society that shepherds were also people to be acknowledged. They weren't the lowest of the low. They weren't, you know, people that we can despise. They may have to work on the Sabbath, but our tradition is that we have kings and prophets who were shepherds. And so I don't think they were despised or sort of viewed as the lowest of the low. Now the core pattern established in this first parable about the lost sheep is also in the other parables, the lost coin and the lost son. That someone or something is lost, they're valued, an effort is made to find them or it, and when they're found, there's great rejoicing. And there's a sting in the tail. Remember the audience Jesus is talking to. In Luke 15, verse 7, he says, In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. So what do you think? When he says those words at the end of those parables, Remember, we've got two sharply divided audiences here. We've got the religious, respectable Jews. We've got the tax collectors and the marginalized people. So first of all, what do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought when they heard these words? Not a rhetorical question. Genuine question, guys. I want you to give me some answers. They would have been upset. Yeah, particularly this bit, A.D., this 99 people who don't need repentance have been pushed to one side. What do you think the tax collectors and the sinners thought? Yay, yeah, that's us. We're the lost sheep. They get it straight away. Both groups get it. And so the next parable that I'm going to move on to is the parable of the lost coin. Now this is deeply embedded really in the um, culture of the time so I'm going to spend a bit of time unpacking the context because as you well know for me context is everything this is about the context of this if we understand this context we understand the depth of the parable because often in our context we get a very superficial understanding of the meaning of this parable because we just think about money it's a lost coin. Oh, be like me losing something out of my wallet. You know, oh, damn, I lost my $50 note. Um, you know, I wish I could find it. I hunt around for it. It's not like that. There's more to it than that. So <clears throat> why is it a big deal for this woman just losing one coin? You know, she could have lost the whole headdress. Why all this effort just for one coin? Why does she take the trouble to light a lamp Sweep the whole house, search high and low for it. 
And after finding it, remember it's just one coin. Why is she so joyful that she calls all her friends in to have a party? So the ten silver coins are bound together as a dowry and a headdress for the woman to wear on her forehead for her wedding day and thereafter. And she would wear this piece of jewellery daily, even while she slept. This piece of jewellery would not come off her head. This dowry was her personal property in a culture where very few things were the personal property of a married woman. And it formed financial support. It was like their backup fund. This was their emergency fund if something happened that they needed to provide for. It also served as an indicator of the woman's status. It showed her wealth and it showed her faithfulness. And in modern society, this tradition still exists. This is a picture of a Bedouin woman from the Sinai Desert. So in some societies, this tradition is still there. Now, if the bride used one coin for a financial transaction without the husband's knowledge or approval, this was seen to reflect very badly on her character. Although it was hers, there was still an element of dialogue and negotiation that was needed. And the husband could take this lost coin as a reason for divorce. If he didn't know why that coin was missing, then in Jewish law, he could use that as a, as a reason for divorce. So the coin meant much more to her than just the value of the coin. For her to lose it meant she lost face in her community she became shameful before her husband and so she makes a desperate search to find it again because not only does her status in the community depend on this, depending on the husband, her marriage may depend on finding this coin. So she is sweeping the whole house and searching for it, not just a bit of metal, not just a, not just a monetary value, she is searching for her right to retain her home, her shelter, her respectability, and her family. To have a safe and honourable place in her culture and society. Her right to mother her children and be a wife to her husband. That's what's at stake here. And rightly or wrongly for that culture, when she finally finds the lost coin. She's overwhelmed with joy and she wants her friends and neighbours to celebrate and rejoice with her. And so Jesus repeats the admonition he made for the parable of the lost sheep. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. So losing things and then finding them again is really always, isn't it, a sort of an occasion of joy. For me, it's that habitual thing of where is my phone? These days we seem very kind of welded to our phones, really. They're not just a sort of source of communication. They've got all sorts of other things tied up in them. So not knowing where your phone is for this generation, anyway, for me, is, is a, a moment, that one of those panic moments, like, dear God, where's my phone? 
But I want to give you another personal parable um, about this, which is called the parable of the lost rings. And um, before all the Lord of the Rings fans get excited, no, this is not the one ring, and I did not go with Frodo to Mount Doom. And, you know. But <clears throat> I wear three rings. So I've got a wedding ring, an engagement ring, and an ordination ring. And they're all rings that Debbie gave me. And on the way back from Nepal a couple of years ago, when I was coming back on um, Air Malaysia, we had a stopover in Kuala Lumpur. So I went to an airport hotel, actually that hotel, that very hotel. And I, because I knew from the internet that they, um, you could buy a shower and um, get freshened up there. So I went and I paid for my shower. I went and got my, had my shower, got freshened up, went away again, waited for the plane and then got back on the plane and, start, and flew from Kuala Lumpur to Auckland, direct flight. So I got back on the plane, and I'm halfway to Auckland, and I look down at my hands, and there's no rings on them. And I realise that although I've put my watch back on and the cross that I wear, I've left my rings in the shower stall at the hotel in Kuala Lumpur. And straight away, I hear the Lord saying to me, don't worry, you'll get them back. And so I kind of had this struggle on the plane, as we always do when we hear the Lord's voice like that, like, is this really the Lord? Am I just projecting my own kind of wishes on what I want to happen, blah de blah But it was really my sort of heart reaction to that was, yes, it was the Lord. So I, I sort of tried to dampen down the panic, <laughs> as you do. And so I landed in Auckland, and I rang the hotel straight away and said, I've lost, I left three wings in this shower stall. Could you tell me, please, if anyone has found them? And about a day later, I got an email from the housekeeping manager saying, yes, your rings were found and the housekeeping have got them in their care. So they thought, oh, problem solved. We'll just get them telexed or fedexed or something back to us, back to me, and it's all done and dusted. But when the housekeeping manager tried to arrange that, none of the courier firms that he contacted were willing to courier the, firms in, to courier the rings internationally back to me. And they all cited various reasons. It seemed likely to me that they just couldn't be bothered. But they cited things like insurance and personal property and blah de blah So he said, I'm sorry, I just can't get them back to you. Really nice guy. But then I still had the Lord's assurance that I was going to get those rings back. I wasn't going to have to fly to Kuala Lumpur to get them. So <coughs> the housekeeping manager had an idea. He had a friend who was a pilot with Malaysian Airlines who was flying to Auckland. And he said, I'll give the rings to my friend. You can meet him in Auckland Airport and he can hand the rings over to you. And that's what happened. And so I did a little uh, dance of joy on the way back from Auckland Airport where I met the the, the um, pilot to my car because God had been faithful and what I had 
discerned to be the truth was the truth. So for me, that was a real lesson in trusting God. You know, quite often, I don't know about you, for me, life just sort of rolls on and it's all business as usual. But occasionally, just occasionally, there's this, these moments where in a, there's a sense in which we've got that opportunity to trust God, to really sort of say, yes, Lord, I know this is out of my control and I hate that, but I'm going to trust you for this because this is what you're telling me. And so for me, I add this into the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin because for me, it's a similar thing. These things were precious to me. There was effort expended to get them back. There was joy when they were returned. So what lessons can we draw from these parables? That's one. Worrying doesn't change anything but trusting God changes everything so God loves each of us individually not only the 99 sheep that are already in the fold but the one that's at the margins the one that's maybe having trouble with their budget that needs help to get that on track and maybe in the process will come to know God themselves but God loves each of us individually. Every single individual is an individual to God. We've got flocks of sheep that are thousands and thousands. But God actually knows each one of those sheep, even if the shepherds don't. Secondly, as Christians, we have to become, be very careful of not becoming Pharisees. That we're not, we, we've got to be really careful that we don't become a righteous person who doesn't need to repent. That sense of humility and of coming before God and being aware of our weakness isn't a kind of self-flagellation that Christians need to engage in, but it's a real estimation of who we are in the presence of God. And any time I feel like I'm becoming righteous or, you know, a click above, that's a very dangerous time for me. And fortunately, I have around me a number of people <laughs> who will point that out. <laughs> and thirdly, this is a measure of God's joy. The importance of each individual is also measured by the joy that God has when they turn to him. So um, the other day I was at the parish office talking to Rose and these two homeless people turned up rolling a trolley, supermarket trolley with all their stuff in it and they wanted somewhere to leave the trolley so that they could um, go into winds and get some temporary accommodation sorted out. And they're the people, I think, that were like that like the tax collectors for Jesus, the people on the fringes, the people on the margins, the people that we don't often encounter, but when we do, how do we respond to them? And so all heaven has a party when anyone repents. And 
we need to be aware of that. That's how we value people. That's how we treat people. We treat people even, and, and recently we've also had some problems at um, Holy Trinity, like last Sunday actually, with somebody breaking into a car while the church service was on. And so we've got that whole thing of, okay, how do we get through this? How do we um, respond to those kinds of issues and events? Um, a similar issue or, or event we were warned about when Deb and I were in Italy with the pilgrimage and we went to a particular inner city church in Rome and it's often frequented by pickpockets. So we were told to, you know, that there was a baptism down one end of the church and we were told not to leave our bags but to take them with us down to the back end of the church because it was well known that the pickpockets would come and infiltrate the congregation and then pick over the various kind of wallets and bags or whatever as part of the service. How do you respond to that stuff? These are people on the margins. And I think we sometimes have a bit of a kind of a romantic glow as Christians about some of that stuff. You're like, oh, these poor people, we're going to help them. Yeah, but actually they might just kick you in the slats back. And what are you going to do then? And then, then you kind of get tested on that stuff. So it's then that's the testing time. Not when, you know, they accept your help and everything seems to go well. But what happens when they kick you in the slats and then you say, oh, well, we're going to forgive you. And then they come back next Sunday and break into somebody else's car. What happens then? So I guess we've got three things. From these parables. Firstly, that God loves every individual deeply, belovedly, and that's us too, and that's the good news. Secondly, for us who are Christians, let's be really careful of becoming righteous people who don't need to repent. Because really, did they need to repent? Of course they did. And Jesus knew that, but he knew that they wouldn't be able to hear that as well. And thirdly, the joy of heaven, let's participate in that. All heaven parties when someone repents and turns to God. Amen.